today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Anna Banerjee. She is with us, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto, and with us now. Anna, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. As we head into May and you're starting to see various provinces, I mean, I guess every scenario is sort of different, uh, with the exception of Ontario and Quebec, which we'll discuss a bit later. How comfortable are you with us uh, slowly release, uh, relaxing these restrictions a bit? Um, I understand the need to have uh, restrictions uh, relaxed. I understand the, the importance of the economy, especially when a lot of people are suffering and uh, people are uh, having the possibility of losing their businesses um, or can't pay rent. But but on the other hand, if we do this um, too fast, um, you know, we, we have a, a very high chance of having a second wave. Um, the reason why we have uh, decreased numbers is really because of the physical distancing that we have in place right now. And um, so the majority of people, uh, you know, in Canada, in Ontario, um, are are negative, they're non-immune. And so the, the virus doesn't really spread when there's, there's a lot of people who are um, not immune. But as soon as you put these non-immune people out there, they... they um, you know, the virus will, will potentially start spreading again. And there are certain areas where really the epidemic is not, uh, is not under control or hasn't started. For example, for long-term care facilities, it's not under, not under control. And for many Indigenous communities who have been trying to restrict people from coming into their regions, um, for some of them, it's just starting. So, you know, having um, some places open with physical distancing, like, for example, um, car washes or landscaping places or, you know, that, that I think, is probably a good thing because we're, we're, we can't keep the economy closed for one or two years or whatever time it takes. But things like daycares cause me concern where you have a whole bunch of kids and some of them may not have very many symptoms or might have a runny nose, and they go home and infect their their parents. You know, maybe their parents have cancer, or their grandparents who are elderly. And so, I think that what we're going to see as, is an increase as we start um, reducing the the uh, restrictions. So, what in your mind? What should we see before we start to relax these? Many have said, you know, we see we need to see more testing. We need to. Uh, to have more supplies, but we also know that you know we just don't have them. We're we're behind the behind the eight ball when it comes to supplies and testing and such. Uh, should we wait till we have sufficient supplies for everyone and testing for everyone before we do start to do this? I think that um, having having us open up and not having adequate facilities for. Uh, for doing the testing and not having adequate PPE is, is not a good idea. Get all that in place and then slowly open up. And places where you cannot physical distance, for example, for children, uh, you know, in daycares, you know, I would not start that right now. I would say, you know, we need to get the economy going, but we're, we're really in places where you can really physically distance and we need to. Um, I, uh, a lot of my colleagues are still saying that they don't have enough PPE. You've got Indigenous communities. We're working on it right now. We're working with a bunch of uh, NGOs, and, and I think the Indigenous Services is trying to get um, PPE into some of these communities, but a lot of the communities don't have the the PPE. Um, the community don't have, doesn't have uh, a lot of face masks, 
some of them don't, you know, they don't have clean water still. Uh, you don't have hand sanitizer, etc. So I think that, you know, we're going to start seeing, uh, seeing it uh, go up again. In a second. Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, Doctor, uh, it, it appears that today is the first day where the new cases have dropped below 400. We're up to uh, 370 new cases today, and uh, it's, we've slowly seen that decline over the last week or so. How significant is it that we've seen this number drop below 400, the new cases? Well, I think it's a very positive sign. Again, that's the scenario, given that people are uh, physically distancing and everything's shut down. So that's a good thing. Is the, the question is, um, you know, how is that going to change when, uh, when uh, we stop uh, the physical distancing and we reduce the restrictions? And we still had 84 deaths, I believe, yesterday. Um, so people are still dying. And again, there's, there's a delay between the point where someone gets the infection and people actually get sick and die. Um, it could be, you know, several days. It could be several weeks. So we really don't know. I think that's a positive sign. And, you know, and I understand that we can't hold back the fort forever. But, but I think that, you know, if we can get even the PPE, how are physicians supposed to work in their offices when their offices are not set up to see all these kids with fevers or adults or people with fevers and other symptoms? Um, so it really puts some people, uh, like daycare workers and healthcare professionals, at increased risk. Um, I think having the PPE in place and then gradually um, opening up certain certain things. Like I think uh, landscaping companies where you're outside, there's probably very minimal risk. And again, if people are so used to doing the physical distancing now, so I think opening up uh, certain stores where you can actually respect the physical distancing, then that seems to be okay. But there are certain areas where it does cause me concern. Uh, what about hospitals? Uh, obviously, uh, a, a great concern when this all started and we were the way up the uh, curve that the hospitals would become uh, overcrowded and, uh, and and be bursting at the seams if there's a lot of people who become uh, infected at once. Uh, it seems that we have prepared for that and, and avoided that, although, again, we, it certainly has hit the long-term care homes and, and seniors' homes and such. But how long or is it time for hospitals hospitals to be going back to other procedures, other surgeries and such? Um, I think that some hospitals are having outbreaks right now of COVID. Um, so again, we just is getting that PPE in place and making sure that everyone's protected. But I think someone who's waiting for, for cancer surgery or other um, procedures, you know, if I think if we wait and see what happens once we reduce the restrictions and we're not having a, a rapid escalation of cases, then I think it, it's time to start looking at the elective procedures and that. Uh, I think we've done a tremendous job in Canada, all of us, in, in the way we've done the physical distancing and the fact that we haven't overwhelmed most hospital systems. And I think that's because of everything we've, we've done. They've, they've canceled uh, elective surgeries. They've... Um, you know, with the physical distancing, we really have flattened that curve. And so um, I think then letting go little by little, we are going to have more people sick. But it, it, as long as it w remains in the capacity for us to deal with it, 
And I think that's the point of flattening the curve until a vaccine comes out. Um, so, so I think that, um, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about those elective surgeries if a hospital has adequate supplies and there isn't an outbreak going on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you mentioned, it, it appears that Canada, uh, despite its differences in, in vast regions from east to west and such, has has had a pretty good handle on this. Obviously, some uh, provinces have, have more of an outbreak on, uh, than others and, and, and more density uh, of population and such. But, you know, compared to somebody like the United States, where the messaging has been quite mixed, it seems that, that Canada has been rowing in the right direction. That being said... How do you explain the differences in Ontario and Quebec, which are two provinces that have uh, a lot of outbreaks, uh, obviously Quebec even more, um, but about the same population and such. How do, you, how do you explain the difference in these two provinces' approach? Uh, some of it is really luck. Um, some of it is, you know, the people that came in, how many people came in, were there super spreaders, were there people that weren't identified? I mean, most of the deaths, really are in the elderly people. And so part of it is when did uh, the outbreak start in these long-term care facilities? Um, so I, I think in general, again, uh, I think there are differences in in uh, across Canada. In some regions, they don't have as many people traveling and may not have as densely concentrated populations. But in general, in Canada, we've done really, really well. And you, you can't have uh, things be identical in, in two different provinces because they're, they're different provinces with different dynamics and different funding for, for health care, et cetera. So um, it's, it's not surprising that there are some differences. Uh, that being said, what can we learn from other jurisdictions, other countries that are ahead of us on all of this and are starting to reopen? Who, who is doing this right? Can we learn from anything? Can we learn anything from those who are already starting to reopen? I don't know. I think it's still pretty early to see what happens if some, some of these countries are having a second wave. The other thing is that things have changed because now we're into getting into the warmer season. A lot of these viruses are... Um, are, are are going away during the warmer season and may or may not come back in the in the uh, the colder season. And a lot of these countries, for example, parts of Europe uh, or Italy that's opened up. Part of it is that uh, a lot of the people have already had coronavirus, and so you don't have a huge number of people who are susceptible anymore. In Wuhan, Wuhan, China, you don't have a bunch of people who are susceptible. So that is really the infection burning itself out rather than um, the infection control measures. But again, it's probably a combination of both. Uh, but I think that watching these, these uh, different parts of the world, seeing how they react, seeing if there are secondary waves, I think that will help guide us. If we see that now in countries where they have opened up, that things seem to be okay, then that reassures us versus where they uh, are now seeing a secondary wave in people who are not exposed the first time. Uh, that will probably tell us that we need to slow down. Um, uh, doctor, what about you know, when we first heard of this disease, it was affecting the elderly. Many young people thought that they were just, you know, uh, uh, immune from from this in some sort of way. Now we're seeing children, kids coming up. First, they called it COVID toe. Now we're seeing rashes and such and it relating to other illnesses. What can you tell us about that and how it's affected kids in that way? 
Um, so if you look at the numbers, for example, in Ontario, uh, we, we've had about um, 13,000 uh, deaths and, you know, many thousand cases, and most of the deaths are really in the, the older population. I mean, the vast majority are, are above the age of 80. When you look at the young people, um, it's really, um, and you look at the deaths in the younger people, it, it's really not a lot of deaths, but you do have conditions where you have the COVID toes. Um, a lot of the kids, they have a runny nose or, or sniffles or milder symptoms. And so I think a lot of the symptoms out there uh, in the time of COVID, um, a lot of the symptoms that we would just say, oh, it's just a cold. But in fact, it really could be COVID. And I'm hearing um, children having uh losing their sense of taste or their sense of smell. They're having these rashes. And so I think COVID is is generally milder in, in younger people. Um, it, it can still kill people at a younger age, but it's much, much, much less likely to. But there are other symptoms uh, like the, the loss of taste and smell and the, the COVID toes that seem to be presenting in the younger people. What about Kawasaki disease and its relation to this? Is there any relation? I'm not aware of any relation. I think that people may confuse the two because Kawasaki often has a prolonged fever and red eyes, swollen glands. Right. Um, Kawasaki can can look like a lot of viral illnesses, um, but so it might. If in a child that has a prolonged fever, you, you always have to think of Kawasaki. But I'm not sure yet of the relationship between the two. Uh, in regard to uh, vaccine and such, still over a year away, is it realistic to think we could have one by the end of the year? I think that there are many, many countries in the world all working simultaneously uh, on this. There, there are vaccines in trial. So the, the question is, is a vaccine safe? Like, is, you know, if you give it to a large group of people, we have to make sure that it's not causing harm. And secondly, does it work? If it only works for a short period of time or doesn't work at all, then it's useless. And so that there are many groups of people, and I can only be hopeful that one of the one of the vaccines is safe and effective and that they can mass produce it in very large doses. I don't know how long that's going to take. I mean, we hope that it, theoretically it could be out before the next viral season because when the next viral season starts and there's influenza out there and RSV and other viruses out there, how do you really tell between, uh, you know, influenza and COVID when many of the symptoms can be very similar, uh, and then it's it. And if we don't have again proper PPE and proper testing, um, hopefully by then we will. It, but it can be very confusing. Do you test everyone that presents with a, a fever, a runny nose, sore throat, or, or do you assume that they're all COVID? Do you assume that oh, it was just the flu? It's it's going to be challenging. Already, it's challenging trying to figure out. You know, some people that have classical coronavirus symptoms or the COVID toe, they have negative tests. And so it's, it is a, it's a bit tricky. Um, but I, I hope, I'm, I'm hopeful that a vaccine does come out, um, within a year. And, and if not much sooner, because I think really that's the major way we're going to deal with this. Uh, once that does happen, doctor, what, how do you think that will be administered? Do you think this will be mandatory? We certainly know the controversy for some around vaccination and such. How do you think that's going to roll out? Well, I think that they're going to start with the highest uh, risk group 
first, so probably the elderly, healthcare providers, people who are, have uh, increased risk of exposure, people with underlying diseases. I think even some of the anti-vaxxers, uh, may, some of them may, may now be thinking, well, you know, if there was that vaccine, I would consider taking it because all of a sudden coronavirus is real and the, the risk of death is, is not impossible. And so, you know, I, I, I think that we do, many provinces do have rules in place as far as vaccination and school-based, um, like, for example, uh, you can't, in many jurisdictions, you can't go to school unless you have um, uh, evidence of vaccination. So that's probably something that's going to happen. But I, I can't speak for all the different jurisdictions. But I would think that once a vaccine comes out, it would be um, more or less mandatory uh and uh i think that the the different jurisdictions will have to deal with the anti-vaxxers maybe they need to have evidence that they've they've been exposed and are immune before they go into these settings where they're putting other people at risk um uh i'm not sure um but that i think the majority of people because the majority of people are afraid of coronavirus right now that uh, i don't think uh, I think there's going to be lineups as soon as mm. a vaccine's available. Um, Doctor, sorry, Dr. Anna Banerjee is with us. Out of time, doctor, unfortunately. Sorry. Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.